Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on, and it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to talk to my guests about the games that we're enjoying playing, to talk to the people who create these games, and to talk about big industry events. Now, I have had a pretty busy term. Just going to pull back the curtain a little bit. And um, I haven't been able to lean into some of the topics that I really have wanted to do on the show, largely to do with just mental brainwave capacity at the moment. I've just, I've been a little tired. Um, and, and that's leaned into the show, leaning into a lot of event coverage and um, talking about things coming out, but not a lot of analysis. And that's something that I actually really enjoy doing. Um, and so I thought today I would invite a friend on, uh, or I guess in this case, a friend of a friend, regular appearer on a friend's show, um, to talk about bolt action and not just talk about an event. Talk to someone who's run an army for a while and talk about can you be historically minded and play competitively in this game? Now, spoilers, kids, if you've listened to the show before, you know you can. And today we are going to talk about how. Now, of course, if I'm talking about the man on the West Coast who's all things bolt action, a man whose show I absolutely love. Of course, I'm talking about Jordan. And of course, I'm talking about SLC scale history. And joining me today is a guest that has been on that show before, a friend of our good friend, Jordan, and someone who has played in some of the hottest U.S. bolt action events. Joining us today is Drake. Welcome to Cast Eyes. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Man, it is always a pleasure to talk shop. And just talking to you a little bit before we even got on air, I think we are going to have a lot to talk about today because I think you got some opinions about the British in bolt action. Uh, and as do I as a longtime British player, I think we are going to talk about how we can get historical and competitive at the same time. But before we start digging in, um, let's talk about you as a bolt action player. Now, you have started as and continued as a British player since starting in this game. Yeah, I have. Um, I, it was funny. A buddy of mine was trying to get me back into tabletop wargaming. And, and this, I, my buddy, who, who mind you, I'm going to, like I told you, I'm going to plug him. It, he Please. works at Trenchworks, mm -hmm. um, which is, by the way, a fabulous company local here in Salt Lake City. Um, he uh, he said, Drake, you need to get in. And I said, okay, tell you what, I'll get into bolt action if you can find me an AEC armored car. Um, I, I play a lot of Company of Heroes. It was in mm -hmm. the second game. And I and, he, and he's like, okay, well, I bet you there is. And lo and behold, there's the Mark III in all its glory. And that was the vehicle that got me into bolt action. Nice. Now, Trenchworks doesn't make that. But Trenchwork makes phenomenal vehicles in fact i i'm i right behind me in the case i have two trench work t28s and a number of trench work japanese tanks 
Uh, they make some of the crispest resin tanks there are. The, the corners are sharp. The detail is great. Cannot plug those guys enough. I know we haven't said the words trench works in a while on the show, and uh, I'm glad you said it because they are absolutely worth, as you said, the plug. Uh, so you have your armor car. Where do you go from there? Well, uh, you know, initially I, I decided I need to get an, a starter army. I look at a couple starter armies, um, and I'm a big tank guy. I love tanks. And mm -hmm. and naturally, the place to go if I'm going to get my AEC armored car is uh, Europe. So, mm -hmm. I'm, and I'm talking, you know, Italy to Normandy. Um, I get the starter army, which I'm really excited about because I get a Cromwell kit. And Cromwell mm -hmm. is one of my favorite all-time mediums. And I get a bunch of dudes in the starter army. Now, I, I will say that this was the old British infantry kits. And so um, those are being phased out because those old molds are uh, they're a struggle. And I've noticed that they are just not as sturdy as the new kits. So I've been slowly actually replacing them. I've had to throw away old kits because... The rifles were so flimsy that they broke. The old uh, original. And look, at the time, these were the cutting edge of World War II plastics. Of course, you're talking about the first British warlord kits. Um, and my Germans had the same thing with the old needle rifles. Um, as in, they were needle thin, not that they shot needles. And so I eventually, uh, wanting to save that army... Uh, cut all the rifles off because they were separate from the hands and uh, bought a couple of sprues of Warlord American rifles because they were chunkier. And yes, I know you're not supposed to put American rifles on Germans, but uh, when you're on the tabletop, no one ever pointed that out and a rifle's a rifle's a rifle. But yeah, those thin rifles, uh, not I mean, always my favorite. If we want to establish historical precedents, I, I mean, the Germans captured all sorts of weapons and have their own designations for them. So it wouldn't be that surprising to see a German with an M1 Garand. True, but maybe not an entire army of them. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> right on. So, okay. So that's, so you started out sort of mid-war uh, British with the early warlord plastics. Now, since that time, you've shifted quite a few times uh, within the British book itself. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I've, I fell in love with the Brits overall, and it just kind of so happened that um, as I was investigating different theaters, I just kind of fell in love with the different theaters. So uh, I initially, my, my, my first addition to my Western force was actually just paratroopers. I wanted to run them alongside my, my later war British. And um, as I was doing that, I started adding a little bit more and a little bit more mm -hmm. while this is going on. Um, my buddy and I, we decide we're going to do the desert together. So I get, I go full steam ahead. Um, I, we just completed my very first tank war event, which if we want to talk about tank options for the British and tank wars, oh, the, so you, you know, yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I actually ran, I bought Rubicon Valentines so I could run three valentine 11s with the 75 millimeter gun mm -hmm. and I, I ran it alongside three shermans but um no so i i afterwards i decided i'm going to do a full tank war army of british forces so i lean in and i buy 
several crusaders um i i love the the idea of a medium anti-tank gun on a cheap light hull and so i i ended up buying rubicon uh crusader kits as well which by the way are also fabulous kits they come with mm-hmm. it, you could you could basically get two turrets out no three turrets out of them um and so uh you know i i've, I've got all these crusaders and tanks for the british army and Later on along the line, I was sick one year, and so my buddies went in and started my BEF, which led me down the line of building a BEF force, um, which I, I have it all, you know, basically ready to go. I, I will say that I think that my most competitive army is probably North Africa, but the nice thing about North Africa is that you've got so many different variations used, used that, like, you you can you could do anything you really wanted with North Africa yeah. and have a good time. Yeah, definitely. And is that where you are kind of at right now, or are you? Because if I'm counting in my my head right, we're on four British yes. Army. Yeah, unless you count my Team Yankee British Army. Um, <laughs> yeah, I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hear you. I I think I'm going to say something that you might disagree with, but I was having a discussion with a couple of friends on the weekend and we were talking about how, I mean, the obvious notion of, or the common wisdom in bolt action, which is that uh, the Soviet book is probably the most versatile armies of book slash army list in the game. You can just do almost anything with it. And there are lots of units that exist in that book and, you know, in additional books, adding units to that, that no other army can do. Um, but I literally was looking at my old British list and realized I could make it identically almost using the Soviet list and possibly make it better using the Soviet list. Um, and I know that that has been a common discussion point over the years with a lot of people. But I would say that the British are possibly the runner-up for that crown of being incredibly versatile, especially once you start adding in um, alternate national rules uh, from the different um, theater books and the different campaign books. And especially when you start adding those additional units, there are j- there's just so much variation that you can put on the tabletop that allows you to field so many different flavors. And some people might think it's weird that you have four British armies and nothing else, but once you consider that, you really can have four completely different gaming experiences using British in different parts of the war. Would you agree with that? You could have more. Um, I'm not even ac- accounting for uh, Burma. Mm-hmm. I'm not. A, I'm, yeah, I'm not. A, I'm not accounting for um, the different national rule, like different nationalities within the Commonwealth. If we're going to talk British, we really have to talk about the Commonwealth as a whole. And how it yeah. was really uh, everybody contributed. Um, I mean, you could technically make three different North Africa armies of varying flavors, and it would each list would act differently. Yeah, I mean, I run an Indian army in my British, a Commonwealth force, and that is my British army and has been uh, since playing Bolt Action. And uh, I've sold it and bought it back a couple times, but I keep coming back to it. And I always run it as the Africa slash beginning of Italy um, sort of time period. But there have been many times in the past where I've gone, you know what? Maybe I do want to get a long barrel uh, Sherman 
up in here and maybe repaint it in a different color scheme and use the exact same army using different um, vehicles, uh, replace my wheeled carriers with tracked carriers and make it a battle for, you know, late Italy, um, Monte Casino maybe, or, you know, some of those uniforms were actually used in the Pacific um, as troops are being shipped around or uniforms are being shipped around. So yes, they're not technically painted the green that would appear in Burma, but you could make, you know, I could theoretically even use that same army probably with different vehicles in a, a more appropriate color scheme in the Pacific as well. And that's a super niche corner of an otherwise huge army selection for the British. Well, the British have something unique. Um, they have a tank that, uh, to my knowledge, I think it's one of the few tanks, if not the only tank, that participated from 1939 to 1945. Mm -hmm. It's not competitive, exactly, but it is Matilda, and Matilda looks great on the table. Is I always forget which one's the Matilda because I've never run it. Is it the one with the tiny little tracks? Uh, it's actually, I'm thinking Matilda too. I, I guess you. I should have okay. clarified. Um, this is the one with the light AT armor nine slow. Okay. Yeah. I know exactly which one you're talking about because I would say some of those cruisers have the smallest tracks I've ever seen on a tracked vehicle. <laughs> yes. I think those are bicycle tires with a little bit of uh hoop tied around. Anyway, moving on. Um, all right. Well, when you are approaching listing, do you, because we are talking about making things historically themed, but also competitive for the tabletop. I know when I come at things, I usually go with an aesthetic, like I'm working on my Soviet naval troops right now. I wanted to have those uniforms. And so I literally built an army around that and then looked at historically, what did they have? What was available to them? And then from that lens, I tried to build something that worked on the tabletop. Now, I'm also not a guy who's playing at the top tier cutting edge of competitiveness because I'm not interested in that. And the more I've seen that, the less interested I am. And I have played competitively, boys and girls. Um, but you are someone who's played at LVO. Um, you've played in some very competitive events with some very competitive players. How are you approaching how you list for the British? So I'm a very competitive player, but I'm the kind of competitive player that um, there are two schools of thought. A, it's either you want to have fun or B, you enjoy pain. Um, yeah. <laughs> take your pick. Um, it, it's funny. Our, our competitive events here in Salt Lake City are kind of weird. And I, I, I can't take full credit, but I think I can take some credit. Uh, I've kind of pushed the narrative along that tanks equal good. Um, and I know that's not the competitive scene for the most part around, you know, the world. But, um, yeah, no, we, we play with a lot of tanks uh, in, in our local scene. Um, one, and I think a lot of that has to do with, one, they look good, and two, they're freaking cool. And, and three, you, you can get into the history associated to these armor fighting vehicles uh, to a point where you're starting to understand how they're how they were used on the actual battlefield. And then you're thinking I could actually use it that way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Right on. All right. Well, what is a local event or, you know, could possibly have just been LVO um, one you've played in or one you're preparing for? Um, what is a list just to give us a litmus test? Because everyone's idea of competitive is different. 
Um, I know that the Australian scene is considered to be by a lot of players internationally to be quote unquote soft or, you know, really hard on comp. So they're, they aren't as quote unquote, uh, what is it? Uh, point effective as some other things, uh, allowing for a greater variety of lists, um, than what we see at say the WTC. Uh, but what would you consider to be a fun competitive list that may not be one that um, takes all the fun from your opponent. Yeah, so um, we'll start with my LVO list. Um, mm -hmm. We're, we're going to get into a lot of North Africa. I've got two different North Africa lists that I'm going to talk about later um, that are probably more geared towards competitive play. But my LVO list was kind of fun. Um, it was, uh, just a brief background, LVO was a 14 dice cap, one single generic uh, selector. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason they did it, it was to try and avoid things like multiple multi-launchers and flamethrowers and, and other things like it. Now, I will say I didn't come with an optimized list. Everybody was running veterans but me. I, I ran an all-regular list. I didn't have a single veteran unit in my list. Love it. Um, I brought, okay, so now I have to think about this. I brought four infantry sections, uh, each with an LMG. Mm -hmm. I had a single, I had a second lieutenant with a buddy. Um, I brought a, now I have to think about this. I brought a 17 pounder, um, which was kind of the ooh ah moment of the list. Like, why would you do that? Mm -hmm. Um, I had a Cromwell. I had a an AEC Mark III, which actually most British lists I'm learning have that armored car. There's a very good reason why those those British lists have that armored car. Um, and then I think I think that's kind of the extent. Oh, and I okay, no, I brought no, it was three ten man squads with Bren, Bren guns and two universal carriers with two five man squads with two SMGs. And I actually ran with a rapid fire special rule. That was my next question. What national rules did you use? Now, I already hear people screaming in the background, particularly those in Scotland. Hi, Al. That um, three LMGs and a super heavy AT gun, that's not competitive. Um, but I'm getting a very uh, hammer and anvil approach to this list. You have mobile, um, hitty, you know, reach out and grab things units in the universal carriers with a couple SMGs. I mean, I literally ran those squads in my CanCon list. So I know a lot of people are like, oh, why don't you have more SMGs? Eh, it's fine. Um, but you also have the AC, you have the Cromwell, you have things that can reach out and get to your opponent, but you also have that, that anvil in place to hold your own objectives in three squads that have the range to reach out and hit people with the LMGs and the rifles. And you also have that super heavy AT gun to shut down parts of the board. Am I summing this up all right? You're correct. Um, I, I was talking to some friends of mine, and I have a habit of playing very... I, I, I play lists where I slow down the game. My, um, and it's and not necessarily in a time-wise. I slow down the game in a way where I'm going to play... I'm going to control the board, and I'm going to force you to make decisions. Um, mm -hmm. One of my favorite strategies, mind you, I get punished for it more often than not. Um, I, I actually kind of like to goad your Panzerfausts. So I try to move my tank in a way where I am just out of reach. And I'm mm -hmm. going to, I try to make you move and fire it so you're hitting me on a five plus. 
um, it's it's better than try than getting hit on a three. And so um, that's that's what I do with or try. That's how I kind of fight Panzerfausts with my, my with my mobile army lists is mm-hmm. make you use them. But not only are the people using them, but by making the move, as you say, you're making it harder for you to be hit, which is huge. But also, often by doing that, they're pulling enough models out of cover that often they're not in cover anymore. And then you can punish them. Um, And they're also not going to go down for you shooting them because they're now in the open and they've moved in shot. Exactly. And the the universal carriers can move in concert with the armored car mm-hmm. and the tank. And so you've kind of got this hybrid force of, okay, yeah, you're going to attack me. I One of the lists I played was 30 Rangers. There is nothing scarier than 30 veteran dudes moving 12 inches at the beginning of a game. And you're like, oh, God, how do I stop mm-hmm. that? Um, y- yeah. Um, Fortunately, my artillery observer hit and pinned him down for the rest of the game. But that's beside the point. <laughs> that was what I, my next question was. I'm guessing in that you didn't have a free squad or the other upgrades that you were running basic British for this and not any other national rules. Because the national rule selection for the British when looking at you know the different Commonwealth troops, not to mention, you know, the Irish guards or all of the other different options that are available in, you know, the soft underbelly and some of the other campaign and theater books, you, you really can change up the way things work on the tabletop. You can. And, um, I think guards actually are kind of an underrated unit, especially in the new soft Mm -hmm. underbelly book. Um, Yes, if if there's no reason to if you're putting ten man squads into transport, there's no reason to take a guard. And and the reason being is the ten man squad already gets to reroll its failed morale test mm-hmm. or its order test. However, if you take guards and five man Bren carriers, um, you're driving your carriers across the board, and they're they're shedding pins, and your guards are are rallying on their natural. Um, order test. If they need to get out, they can re-roll their failed. They, they can re-roll failed tests. So guards are actually perfect uh, mobile infantry for your transports. They really are. The only reason I am not running my Indian troops, if they were standard Commonwealth as guard, because I run um, carrier spam, is because I'm running Indian carriers, not Bren carriers. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Love uh, love a mobile force that has the ability to pin sprinkle now when i'm using carriers i'm always running them with dual lmgs to be able to focus fire on one target to cause casualties or split fire to put pins on two units and to run them sort of side by side so i can actually put multiple pins on multiple units um is that how you're rocking this uh yes i I also i but i they're actually to me they're more of assault carriers so I drive up, I keep my five-man squishy squad safe um, as they're doing around and driving around and doing their thing. Now, when I need to take an objective, I drive the carrier up to within six inches, I dump all my shots, and then my guys inside get out and dump all their shots. Exactly. So, um, and the nice thing is, you know, if, if I need to, I can withdraw the carrier and shove my officer in it just to shoot the second machine gun again. Yeah, definitely. And... Or the the old artillery observer that's fired a shot and doesn't know what else to do with his life. I've used that 
many times in the past where I gone, Hey, this guy doesn't really have much to do with his life here. Jump in a carrier, man, another brand. Let's do my, this. Hey, my officer has captured more objectives and won me more games than you would be. A... <laughs> People yeah. are like, wait, that can capture. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Again, that's an infantry model, boys and girls right on. Um, okay. So let's talk national rules because if we're talking base book national rules, the big one that everyone loves to talk about is the free artillery observer. And if you ask people, hey, what are the British national rules? That's the one that everyone seems to mention first. Now, the British also get um, a choice of national characteristics. If you are playing, of course, the Armies of Great Britain book as is, and you get the choice of up and atom which is, uh, I believe, what we've called a thousand times as uh, British bonsai, because it's very similar to the Japanese bonsai rule. Uh, Blood-curdling charge. Um, We have tough as boots, rapid fire, and vengeance. Now, I'm not going to go into all of those because those have been done a thousand times before. Um, Weirdly, when I've played this, particularly when I took it to CanCon and played super competitively, um, and one, I actually had someone ask me which national characteristic I used after the event and embarrassingly realized I actually didn't use one. Um, I forgot. Um, and that was because I, I was thinking, oh, well, my big national rules, I have a free artillery observer. And I was thinking the artillery support was also what I would be using for that. But um, sorry, but the bombardment rule um, with preliminary bombardment it was because they were on a separate page i i i was focusing so much on the brens and the artillery and how it all synergized that i actually didn't use one which i probably shouldn't do admit to um but it almost feels like these or this combination of national rules is really powerful it's insanely powerful um I I have probably take rapid fire more than most people, mm-hmm. um, but I'm also taking meaty ten man squads uh, yeah. with with limited weapons, and so rapid fire kind of in its own way makes sense. And where I'm grinding it out, I've seen an inexperienced squad kill a veteran squad in close combat. Um, so free charging is nice up until you lose a 140 point squad to a 30 point squad. Um, yeah. Um, and then the other, the only other thing that I that I would mention that people don't typically take because up and atom is just so darn good uh, is vengeance. Um, yeah. ven- you can apply vengeance to literally every single unit in your army. If you're taking a transport heavy army, the fact that you can um, take a pin off before the order test is insanely powerful um, because your transports are literally driving along. They're shedding pins as they're being shot at, and your guys inside are rallying. Um, it's it's a very like, oh, I'm gonna get pinned. Sorry, I'm not. Like, I, I'm mm-hmm. just gonna take it. Yeah, I shout out to Dave Hunsdale, who's been on the show a little bit recently, uh, a couple times. Uh, but when I was playing against his British. I hadn't seen people using vengeance effectively in a while, but he was using it really well and shedding, getting up and up close and personal with his British, but also using vengeance because I was putting a couple of pins on units. 
um, using the strategy that I've been doing a lot recently, which is put two pins on everything because it's just dangerous enough that it makes people think, do I rally? Um, most people won't. But if they then even pass their test, there's still another minus one to hit me. And because I have enough units that are able to put out pins on different units, um, it really is slowing the effectiveness of opponents shooting and, you know, bolt action happens and people seem to fail tests on one pin a lot. So, um, or two pins, especially. So with his though, he was shedding a pin because of vengeance and then passing his order test and then moving as if nothing happened. And that was really frustrating for me because my, my cute tactics weren't working at all. Um, and that was a really fun way or effective way to force me to totally change the way I was playing. And he really backfooted me, especially on a table that was super heavy and dense on terrain. I just couldn't rely on my usual tactics. Um, yeah, vengeance is such a good rule. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that's kind of the extent British national rules. Good. Those are the two I like using. Yeah, I've used tough as boots, depending on the army. Um, but I've, you know, where it's the hand to hand combat version of the rapid fire rule, where for every three guys, you get a bonus. I don't know if I would use it a lot now, but um, look, it's worth mentioning. It depends yeah, on your really. build. If you're really going assault heavy and you want to lean into that, that is an option. But if you're going to really be planning to be in people's faces, honestly, um, being able to up and at them and go right into people is probably better and well, definitely better. And then, of course, vengeance is another way of shedding those pins so you can get where you need to be. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, I would take up an atom in an infantry-based force if, I, if I'm planning on assaulting, and I would take vengeance on a vehicle-borne force. Yeah, exactly. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, what are some of the alternative national rules slash... Um, themes, Commonwealth rules that we've seen in some of the books that you think are worth mentioning. Um, while you're thinking about that, I might start with the Indians. Um, now, I understand the way it was FAQ'd gives me a headache um, and that you get all sorts of bonus national rules with Indians. Um, I, I think they FAQ'd it the wrong way. Um, and I'm expecting... He says cringing that that will be fixed eventually. Um, but at the time being the way that I'm playing it, which is the way I, I rules is read it. Um, not the way it's been FAQ'd is that I'm basically just replacing, uh, the free arty observer with a free 10 man squad, a regular 10 man squad, I should say. And, um, getting the Soviet re-roll morale before your destroyed rule and taking that as the national characteristic, not taking an additional one on top of that. Uh, although I know that's not what the FAQ says. That's just the way I'm playing it. Um, I really, my play style really prefers having that extra 10 man squad. And I think that once you combine that with the Soviet rule of, if you're going to be destroyed, being able to re-roll morale checks with the British selection of units is a really effective combination. 
Um, and I use that in my uh, Indian list all the time. And I couldn't be happier with that, especially since I'm often running smaller squads in Indian carriers as a part of my force. Uh, it really, that has saved my bacon and not had units run away a bunch of times. Um, how about you? So um, if I've ever looked at uh, any extra national rules, uh, I'm going to go back to the same campaign book that you did for your Indian ones. I think Western Desert is a really overlooked, underrated mm -hmm. uh, book for British rules. I mean, you've got the Australia ones just alone are, are really mm -hmm. good because, oh, by the way, I can deploy my, uh, my four deployers. Um, and uh, I think with, uh, and then also, so yeah, no enemy that four deploys may set up within 18 inches of an Australian. Mm -hmm. And uh, Australians also spot hidden units at 18 instead of 12. I mean, and then you've got their never give up when defending in an assault scenario, uh, Australian inf infantry and artillery count as having the fanatic rule. That's crazy. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> well, uh, on this podcast network, uh, Patch and Brian uh, from the Ghost Army podcast, Brian in particular, um, were instrumental in the creation of those rules. And they are really good, uh, <laughs> especially when used in conjunction with one another. They are just, yeah, that is a solid build. Often slept on, shouldn't be. You do see a lot of Australian armies down here in Australia uh, because, you know, it's the local team, so to speak. Uh, but man, I'm surprised we don't see more Australian armies internationally. Not only are there awesome models for them, but wow, those are great rules, right? Well, and the real advantage to running a, a British force is you could technically build an army and run any of those national characteristics. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, the, the people don't realize this, the 8th Army was composed of New Zealanders, Australians, South Africans. You can have Australians. Yes. And, and, yeah. I've got I've got a my my North Africa force. I have a squad of of Indians. I have a squad of South Africans. And yes, I put them on the table together because they fought together. You can see you'll see photos where you know the the desert was kind of an equalizer when it came to these different uh, people coming together to fight a, a common enemy. Yeah. And if you are particularly uh, interested in the desert war. If you haven't been watching uh, Rogue Heroes, the SAS, quote unquote, uh, biopic show by well, by the same people who did Peaky Blinders, it's very cartoon, comic book, you know, action-esque. And yes, some of it is, quote unquote, accurate, and some of it is made up for, you know, fictional purposes. But it's, as they say, it's the bits that you think are most unlikely that are the, the things that actually happened. Look. It's an interesting show. I've only seen a couple episodes because it's only just net airing in Australia. But if that was a lot of fun to watch, just watching a couple episodes of that, and I immediately pulled my seeks out and was looking at them again going, how am I going to make this even more interesting and weird on the tabletop? It's a lot of fun. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I liked SA, or the Rogue Heroes. I will say 
I think they nail the vehicles as far as historical for the most mm-hmm. part, but they did a really big no-no in my book on the last episode with historical vehicles that I'm not going to spoil for you. I was going to say, don't spoil if it if it has spoilers, don't tell me because I am going to watch it. But yeah, okay, yeah, it's also like watching. Is it something like watching? I watched Force Ten from Navarone the other day. And uh, the Germans were all using at the end, the the convoy going over. By the way, this is not a great movie. If you haven't seen it with Harrison <laughs> Ford, Robert Shaw, Carl Weathers, um, Richard Keel, the guy who played Jaws in the uh, Bond movies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With that, the, the just the convoy at the end is like American half tracks painted with German colors going across <laughs> this bridge. And you're like, what is that? Like, as a kid, I thought it was amazing. As an adult, I look at it and go, that's not even pretending to be accurate. Anyway, moving on. Um, let's talk. Oh, God, man, I could go in a thousand directions, but I know you have notes. Where would you go next? Do you want to talk about some competitive lists that you could run in the desert that are still historically accurate? Absolutely. Um, there's two lists. I'm actually getting ready for Gajo Grad, which is our, if anybody knows, Gajo Games is our local game store. Um, it's kind of like a mecca for war games. Um, if you walk in and you'll see Warhammer this and Bolt Action there, and you've got Battlefront stuff there, and you've got, you even get some of the more niche games like Infinity or Malifaux. Um, but we're doing our big event. We're actually filling up the store. I think we're registered to like 26 people. And Brilliant. yeah, we're, we're bringing in people from Montana and, and, and you know, in Wyoming. I mean, this is, is going to be a huge event. We, and we're kind of copying. Jordan and I may have listened to the episode where you guys talked about picking a theater selector. Mm-hmm. And, and we talked about it. And so, and Jordan being the TO decided, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And so um, I ended up picking a selector. Now, initially, I searched high and low, and I went with a Canadian Airborne just because it had a Tetrarch in it. Mm-hmm. But I ended up switching. Um, I'm going to do a Commonwealth Infantry Brigade, 1940 to 1942. Now, here's the crazy thing about this theater selector. You can take t- if you take one 25-pounder, you can take a second. Now, you have to pay for them both, mm-hmm. but you, this, the fact that you can get two in a single selector is great. Yeah. Here's the kicker. You can buy, um, and depending on the depending on the years, if you're doing like 1940 to 41, for every two infantry squads, you get a t- you can buy a tank. So you and you can have up to six infantry squads in this in this selector. So you can have three tanks. Three tanks, dual 25 pounders. Wow, wow! You can do some damage with that. Yeah. Um, I'm uh, the list that I'm running. It's going to be five infantry squads. We're doing a thousand points, and if if I'd really wanted to be cute, I would actually run A10 tanks or A10 cruisers. Um, that's an armor eight tank, light anti tank gun, coaxial, but it still retains the. And it, I'd take the version with the whole machine gun. Um, I think it runs at about a hundred thirty-five points, somewhere around there. Um. And you could take a bunch of those. I'm actually going to be running a Matilda just because one, Matilda's cool, and and two, it's what I have. Mm-hmm. But I am taking both 25 pounders. I'm taking 50 dudes. 
Um, or I, I, or alternatively, I thought probably I'm doing 30 guys and then two, so an additional 10 for my universal carriers. Um, this is an insanely powerful theater selector that nobody talks about. Yeah, I don't know that one. And that is, I mean, being able to look in an era where you are in most events where you can take dual platoons um, and you can mix things up. That is good because you don't have to play the lieutenant tax to get multiple tanks. But especially in events that lock you down to one platoon, which I've seen increasingly recently, seems to be a trend at the moment. That's brutal. Yeah. And I, you know, you are, it does limit you in a certain way. So if you do 1940 to 41, you can only take A10 cruisers or Matilda 2s. And then conversely, if you go to 42, it's Churchill's and Valentine's. Yeah, but the A-10 Cruiser is one of those really efficient tanks for what it does, right? It's Oh, it's really great. Um, I, I just added one to my BEF force because it was cheap and effective. So do you? Um, I'm looking at quite a few options here, but if I'm reading this right, the A-10 Cruiser Mark II, Mark IIA, and Mark II CS is 125-point regular, 100-point inexperienced, has a turret-mounted two-pounder with a coax MMG with on a light tank. Now, that doesn't sound particularly great, but if you add a forward-facing medium machine gun for 10 points, making it the Mark IIA, all of a sudden, you have much more firepower on that thing. Or you could replace the anti-tank gun with the light howitzer in a forward hull-mounted machine gun for 10 points, making the vehicle the 2CS. That seems much better. That gives me flavors of all of the Japanese tanks I run. For that price, I, man, if I could run three of those in my Japanese army, and I think point for point, it's almost identical to what my Japanese tanks do. Um, I'm thinking the Type 89 Ego um, or the Chiha. Wow. That's, if, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And if you run a 1,250-point list, which a lot of competitive events, for whatever reason, we're doing single platoons at 1,250 uh, here in the U.S. I don't know why. God, that makes my head hurt. Why? Everyone's going to take veterans. Yeah. Like, I understand um, locking to one platoon to stop spam of special things and to stop people running 23 order dice lists. But all you're doing when you're cranking up the points and keeping it locked on one platoon is ensuring that everyone's going to be bringing veterans or you're just going to see some of the most abusive, expensive infantry in the game. Soviet engineers, I'm looking at you. Gurkhas, I'm looking at you, et cetera, et cetera. Like, why? Yeah, it's, it's yeah, that's, that's kind of my shtick about it. Um, I see it as an excuse to bring vehicles. Obviously, that's where um, people ask me if I enjoy pain. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I play what I like. So, and I like tanks. Yeah. Well, turns out if you run into a Gurkha spam army and you're running a lot of vehicles. Yeah. Yay, have fun, Gurkhas. Yeah. <laughs> 
he, 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 I, I'm betting you did not take anti-tank grenades. Um, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> You're already paying enough for your infantry. Actually, they're not paying nearly enough for those infantry. I still want them repointed. Anyway, moving on. Yes. Um, now, you said you had two lists. Yeah, so the other one is a, I run a generic, two generic, or a double selector that I, that mm -hmm. I like to run. Um, and this is where I field my crusaders. So I will do, and I've, I've been kind of playing around with this. Warlord just released the new heavy mortar kits for the British Desert Forces. Yeah, they um, did. Uh, so what I've been doing is I run a double selector. I'll pay the minimum requirements. I will actually um, pay for regular officers um, and an extra man. And occasionally for the third man. And it's because they do become efficient little assault squads. Mm -hmm. um, I do not see them as attacks. Now, if I need to shave points, that's where I usually go first. Um, but so I, I, I do the double selector. I'll do the two infantry squads. Um, I try to run at least three 10-man squads in every list I do. Um, there's just something nice about having a little meat on the bones. Mm -hmm. um, I will... I, I try to fit in two Bren carriers with the five-man squads like we've talked about, but I like to run Crusader 1 alongside a Crusader 3. Now, the, the advantage of the Crusader 1 is it's, this is prior to the British deleting the hull facing 90-degree turret. So it's got a, a hull machine gun still, and you've still got the light anti-tank gun. You can run this as the CS version, and it's basically the A-10 that we talked about. It's just tinier and harder to hit. Um, <laughs> um, and then the Crusader three. Now, people will tell me, you're being point inefficient. Why are you buying a, a medium anti-tank gun and coaxial machine gun, and that's it? I'm like, well, it's mobile AT, and I've yeah. killed tigers. So, you know, I, it's nice to have it in the force. And if worse comes to worse, um, I'm, a, I'm actually a big believer in HE. Uh, if I can get a good shot with an HE round instead of my machine gun, I'm going to fire the HE typically. And it's just because I've got that possibility of throwing that extra pin. Yeah, it's a one inch. But if you've got three guys right there, I'm more likely to kill three dudes with an HE round than I am with my machine gun. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right, right? So. Oh, I Point efficiencies, I, I know I've said this before, but I absolutely understand why people say it. Because bolt action, more than most war games, because it's still relying on its first set of point values from edition one, uh, even though you know we are in the second edition and the rules do different things, particularly around AT guns and howitzers, um, and how those interact with vehicles, there are there are some significant point inefficient units. Uh, and there are some things that are just too good for what they're pointed at. But if you have a game plan and you really want to run something, there are very few things in this game that you can't run effectively if you have a a, a plan of how you're going to run it. Um, and the internet wisdom isn't always right, kids. Um, I know I've talked a lot about my carrier spam in this list, and I am going to put on my hipster glasses here for a second. But I was told by literally some of the best bolt action players I knew at the time um, that that list couldn't win a game. And I was running 
three carriers. And now they're considered the height of competitive. If you see something that you think works, first of all, put it on the table and have a go. But if you're interested in it and you believe in it, you'll find a way to make it work. Now, there's a million other examples of that, of being just having something on a tabletop and have people say, no, that isn't the most efficient thing. But the other side to that coin is if you're running something that people aren't necessarily familiar with, you might actually be able to, you know, someone might just make a bad decision because they don't know what your stuff does or they're just not used to facing it. Now, that's particularly true in games like 40K where there's a million units with a million individual special rules. But that still applies to bolt action. Um, would you agree with that? Am I barking up the wrong tree here, Drake? Absolutely. And you can take fun units that do things you want the list to do. Um, and I, I mentioned heavy mortars, right? Um, yeah. This is where this list kind of gets really sweaty. I take two 25 pounders, and then if I can, one heavy mortar, and maybe two because I can. This is it, it, two 25 pounders and two heavy mortars. I mean, that's, and we already talked about having two tanks, and that's where this list kind of gets sweaty really fast. Mm -hmm. um, the tanks are just there because it makes my ADD brain happy. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and kids, this is what happens when you have a guest that has attention deficit disorder and a host that has attention deficit disorder on the same show talking about British stuff. Uh, yeah, man, that's the thing. If it if it grabs you and you want to run with it, I mean, that is a lot of AT and HE available on the tabletop to rock. And that would, I mean, that is definitely more competitive than what I usually see in events here. Yeah, um, I, I'm actually, and people will ask me, where's my flamethrower? Let's get into some theater, uh, let's get into some actual uh, theater uh, integrity that, that I like to call it. The mm -hmm. British Army didn't really use flamethrowers. Mm -hmm. They weren't really available until Normandy in 44. Um, yes, there are units um, like Royal Engineers who can take them. But I would dare you to try and find a source that says that Private So and So actually had a flamethrower and burned some krauts in the de you know in the Western Desert. Yeah. You, you know I I'm and I bet you somebody's going to probably go up and look up look for it after listening to this. Mm -hmm. but, the internet's um, looking right now. I promise yeah. you. <laughs> but I don't take flamethrowers for the most part. It's because they just aren't common. Um, the only force I take them with are my paratroopers. Yeah, my DAC army I turned in for a list uh, for an event and it immediately got a resub notification from the TO who said, you can't take that many pioneers in it. And I said, it's a pioneer themed army, but did you actually look what's in the squads? And he went, no, I just saw pioneers. And I assumed that they all had flamethrowers. No, it's a pioneer theme. There's one flamethrower <laughs> entire army. And he went, oh, oh, the army's fine then. He went, yeah. Turns out you don't have to take a flamethrower. So you, Royal Engineers, you can take just fine uh, without yield flamethrower. So again, if you want to theme something, you can. Uh, yeah. It just you don't have to take all the options all the time. Absolutely, and like I said, do you do I do I enjoy fun or do I enjoy pain? And I I just disagree with flamethrowers. Now I will say. If we, you know, as this conversation progresses, I've looked for excuses to try and fit a crocodile in the list. I've, I've tried really hard. Um, 
that's like the one tank where it's like I just can't justify it. I I just can't. I mean, how um, many points is that? It's a lot. It's like five hundred fifty. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <it's>, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you're talking to a guy who legit has taken an IS three to multiple events. So yeah, yeah. The the most point inefficient tank in the game. It makes a Tiger two, you know, look reasonably point efficient. Yeah. 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 But you know. If you have a game plan and you want to have fun with it, yeah, why not, right? But a Absolutely. crocodile, that that beast would be fun to see on the tabletop. And I have seen him. I think my buddy Pedro ran one at one point. Maybe it was Mark Skelton. I have to remember. We've seen one at a Melbourne event once. It was funny. So, yeah, good stuff. Well, I mean, that. It, it, I, I'm sure we might, we'll probably get into this, hopefully. Churchills are actually a bit more competitive than people realize. All right. You can't drop that and then not back that up. So g- talk through because I know people are going to get feisty. Oh, yeah. I, I know people will get feisty over this. Yes, it's a six inch. But yes, it's a six. It's a six inch uh, bathtub tank. Um, it doesn't get very very fast unless you stick it on a road. So hold on it. You're saying six inches because it has the slow, slow roll. Yeah. And it moves six inches rather than the usual nine. Yeah, exactly. Is it slow? Yes. Is the 200 and I think it's 75 point version with a 75 millimeter gun make it a little spicy? Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, the 75 millimeter gun is a highly underused, underappreciated main weapon that we should all be taking and we should all be using. Explain. Um, Dig in. It's a medium anti-tank gun, mm-hmm. but you're getting a two-inch side-by-side at a discount. Instead of having to pay for a heavy anti-tank gun, you're, you're getting that. Now, the advantage of the Churchill is it's an Armor 10 brick. And so the idea is, one, I punish you if you shoot at it because I, you know, the, like it's got decent enough armor where you're, you're going to have a hard time dealing with it. Or two, mm-hmm. you avoid it, and Churchill's now in the middle of the table, contesting the middle and laughing at you hysterically as it's shooting things up with its HE and whole machine gun. Um, because you let it in turn five get to the middle of the table. Yeah. Um, I think I love Churchill. Uh, I try to fit them in. Now, I will say, everybody talks about the AVRE variant. I was going to say the bottle launcher, the thing, the stubby little barrel that's almost as wide as it is long. Yes. Now, I wager that the three inch is actually better at a better better value. Because. Okay. I'm looking this up. Explain. It is. So you pay 265 points. So you're paying the stock value of a regular six pounder Sherman. Mm Mm-hmm. In the book, it's actually been FAQ'd. It says light howitzer. It's actually a medium howitzer. Okay. That's and, why I was getting confused. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. you're not limited to direct fire. Ah, uh, yes. So, Mr. Churchill, by the way, now, uh, at a at a, actually kind of a reasonable price, has a medium howitzer. That, that, that can do things. Yeah, I like the way you think. Not to mention, I mean, I'm I'm flipping through the armies of book right now. Just looking at the Churchill, I maybe it's because I've seen ten thousand Shermans over the years, and I'm mm-hmm. sick to death of looking at Shermans. But 
it just looks cool. Yes, it, it does. And it's only 50 points more than a Cromwell. Yeah. I, you oh, know, heavy tank, heavy, heavy tank. And, you know, I, I think people overlook at him because heavy tanks are point inefficient. I really don't. I think Churchill, as far as point efficiency goes, is probably one of the most point efficient heavy tanks in the game. Um, I think IS-2 probably has something to say about that. Um, mm-hmm. IS-2 is a monster. Yes. But yes. I think but I think Churchill um, can make a very good case of, oh, yes, I, de- I definitely have utility. Um, and I actually think Churchill, I've been, I've been hunting for a model, and I think Mad Bob makes one for a Churchill one. Mm-hmm. They're a little bit... That they're a little bit more in points, but you get the light anti-tank gun, a coaxial machine gun, and a hull-mounted light howitzer. Yeah, it it's it definitely has tools in one vehicle that a lot of other things don't, because you can fire. A lot of people would say, "Well, why don't you just take something that has you know a bigger gun and you can use it one way or the other? It, it still counts as a light howitzer." Well, this allows you to fire both in one turn. Um, and as someone who rocks a Lee, an M3 Lee regularly, which has the hull mounted uh, Sherman 75, has a turret mounted light AT gun, and then another little tiny turret on the top with a machine gun on it, allowing you to fire three weapon systems at one time at three separate targets. That is such a slept on vehicle. I cannot tell you how good it is. Yes. It's ugly, so, but it's good. Yep. No, absolutely. I think uh, Grant is a great tank. Um, Grant Lee. Uh, I think Brits probably use more Lee than Grant. Um, but no, I. that's that's kind of my uh, expose or, or little spiel on the Churchill. I think it's a slept-on heavy tank, and people should probably consider them more than they do. Well, let's talk about your love of a super AT gun because we've talked a little bit about super heavy ATs and the 17 pounder and you're liking them on the tabletop. Um, and I know that's an unpopular opinion because they are brutal, but people often then say, oh, but they're too point inefficient to be good. I, I totally disagree with that opinion. Uh, they are one of my favorite weapon systems in the game, um, but I'm... I'm curious to hear your thoughts um, as someone who's also uh, a lover of these big, scary guns. Well, I brought one to LVO. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm of the opinion that 25 pounder is great if you can take two. If you can't take two, why bother? Um, There are people who will yell at me at that. Um, I'm laughing. I think that's amazing. um, But... You know, I the nice so I I opted in the in LVO to take a 17 pounder. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, it does it has it, you, people think oh it's probably the same as an 88. It isn't. It doesn't sit on a turntable. It doesn't have a six man crew. It's four or is it five? It's 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 still I think it's a smaller gun crew. It's not it, 75 dudes. Yeah. Um, it's it can't do AA. And all of a sudden, you've got a super heavy anti-tank gun at a discount compared to the 88. If you're comparing it yep. to the Flak 88, it is a discounted super heavy anti-tank gun. Mm-hmm. At 140 points, I guarantee you one hit and it will make it up. It will it will pay for itself in one hit. Um, 
at, at, at one of the games I played at LVO, I put it in a place, it was a really dense table, but I put it in firing lanes and that we ended up playing point defense, which I don't know why, but we did play point defense. Um, and uh, I actually won the dice roll and, you know, I, they let us have preparatory bombardment and, as British, normally that's exciting, and I thought, I'm playing point defense, why would I do that? So I ended up playing defense. First turn of the game, he forgot about the 17-pounder and drove a Panzerwerfer in front of it. Yeah, ouch. Yeah. <laughs> um, that 17-pounder proceeded to kill the Panzerwerfer, a mortar, a half-track, another infantry squad. It ate, uh, It killed... It, it, like it was MVP at eight killed 800 points of his 1200 point army. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. And, and, you know, I, if you're playing double envelopment, um, if you take the Morris tractor, it's only an additional 15 points mm-hmm. and it's wheeled. And so if you're trying to get across the board, you stick the, the Morris tractor next to your medium tank as it's driving along. So it keeps it in play and you can actually get the tractor off the table for points. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of people. I think about this and I know I'm jumping back to Soviets again, but a lot of people talk about, you know, when it's the British and the Soviets share one particular uh, trait that you always see the same AT gun. You always see the ZIS three. You always see the 25 pounder. Now, of course, I'm exaggerating. Not everyone takes them, but they are almost stapled in. You almost have to get your staple remover out to put something else in that list or even not take them because of points because they're always in there. Both armies have an actually a pretty good selection of cannons of both howitzer and anti-tank guns of different varieties. Uh, some have some weird rules too. There's a giant versatile cannon that the Soviets can take, the one out of the IS-2. Yes, it's less likely to hit. It's minus one to hit, I think, if you're firing it at long range or short range. I can't remember um, if you're firing it directly uh, or as an anti-tank gun. God, I should have looked that up before I said it out loud. But they both have cheap artillery tractors. They both have a wide variety of guns. So if you want to take a, I don't know, something different that isn't the standard 25-pounder ZIS-3, and you understand why, because they can be fired as an HE platform or as an AT gun, but there's lots of options in there that you can get. And again, they don't have all of the additional rules stacked on top of them like the 88. So it's always funny that people put 88s on the tabletop especially given that the Germans have some of the worst toes in the game. Yes, I know horse toes. Eh. Um, But there are, particularly in the nations that have the ones that people always take, the smaller ones, I feel like those are the nations where they should be taking the bigger guns. Am I rambling here? No, no, I I agree. Um, And I mean, it harkens back to my choice of the 17, right? Um, mm-hmm. my, my intermediary choice is a 90 millimeter anti-aircraft gun that takes a pin every time it shoots. Why would I take that? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so the next step up is, is the 17 pounder and people don't realize that super heavy gets a three inch template. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've had pretty epic circumstances where a guy, he'd gotten his squad out, he dumped all his shots into the, into the 17 pounder at point blank range. And I thought, okay, he, he left one guy alive, one guy alive, stayed on the table and the next turn, turned the gun by himself and fired a point blank HE shot, killed the whole squad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I agree, some of these bigger nations probably should consider some of these bigger guns. Um, now, I will say the British, uh, they, the 25-pounder really was the preferred artillery choice of the British Army. 17-pounder, um, you know, evolved to be the preferred towed anti-tank gun, but they still had a lot of six-pounders. Um, if you get into howitzers for Brits, that's where it kind of gets a little weird. Um, I think 5.5 inch guns were fairly common, but you would never see one on the front line. Um, and same with their, with the British super heavy, which I believe is the 155 long time. Yeah. Um, which one, I've never seen a model and two it, I think it, it takes away from the theatrical integrity of what, or the, the thematic integrity of a list. Because like I said, would you really ever see one being deployed by tractor to sit in a, to, to fight in a frontline position? And you just wouldn't. Um, I think the Americans are probably another nation that really, I mean, they've got the one, the 105 millimeter howitzer, but realistically they just, they, they don't, there's nothing you really see that's like, yeah, that's thematically correct um, in, in the much bigger department. Yeah, it's it is interesting, right? By the way, Mad Bob makes a long tom, uh, makes a very nice long tom, I might add. Oh, yeah. I, for me, I always look at those um, mainly because I do like occasionally putting down a big stupid howitzer on the board as the uh, you know as a deterrent from having my opponent move anything in that direction. Is um, they were there first, and then the firefight came to them. Uh, yeah. But, you know, given the, the missions and bolt action, you often have to move them on the board. And they did FAQ it, so now you don't need a toe. You can just literally move it on. Um, but the second you get ranged in by a mortar, you're screwed. So, um, yeah, you do yep. occasionally need to keep the toe. Besides, 15 points, another order dice, keep it behind the gun and move it when you need. Eh. Yeah. Yes, or it means your gun isn't firing for a couple of turns because you have to limber and move and unlimber and then blah. But, you know, if you're going to let mortar range in on you, then. Or like I yeah. said, you, you could just use the toe in double envelopment to get some points. Look, <laughs> I'm not saying I have to do anything like that in the past. But, uh, yeah, that I mean, toes are remarkable. Well. Enter comment the thing I say all the time. Why of all the nations does America have easy mode itself has uh, a toe that you can put machine guns on? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, um, when I start railing against uh, American toes with machine guns on them, I think it might be getting close to wrapping up time. We have been going for an hour, but Drake, I know that were other things that you were wanting to talk about today. Are there any other topics you want to lean into before we start rolling out? Um, I, I think we've we've pretty much covered everything that I've I've desperately wanted to talk about. The only other thing that I would add are British armored cars. Um, the British have a nice selection of of armored cars, and the, the unique thing about the British Army is they actually use them. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I mean, yes, the Germans used their armored cars, but they often struggled off-road and were often pulled from service or, you know, XYZ happened to them and they canceled production. I mean, whereas the British Army, the Daimler armored car served the entire war. The Humber served a majority of the war. Um, we talk about my AEC art mark whatever um the aec mark three was the armored car that got me into the game and and again spicy 75 millimeter gun um mm -hmm. there is something to be said for a medium anti-tank gun that can shoot a two-inch template oh yes there is it's why people love shermans and people forget that that gun is on all kinds of other vehicles and a lot of them british too mm -hmm. a lot of them british now i i will say um, just to kind of wrap things up, um, I like I love armored cars. I, I we don't need to go too much into detail because I think there's there's all there's a lot of thought that goes into armored cars. But the British do have a wider selection of armored cars than any other army out there. Full stop. They they do. Um, you so you've got the AEC. I know people like to take the Staghound. Mm hmm. Um. I think the Staghound might even be one of those few armored cars you can take a pintle on. I, I'm not sure. I would have to look that up. I don't remember British vehicles having a lot of pintles. They they don't. I mean, you can take them on M10. Yeah. Um, or like, oh, that's one I forgot. Achilles. Oh, yeah. That is one that I forgot about if we're talking 17-pounders. Um Long story short, British have a wide variety of armored cars. Um, they're cheap, and I often include one. Even if it's not that point efficient, it's still another vehicle that you have to fight. Um, I like the Humber Mark II a lot. I think that light auto cannon can be pretty nice, and it's enclosed. It is not open-topped like it's 222 comp uh, Contemporary. Mm -hmm. um, you've, uh, Like I said, we've got the Staghound, which has... No, maybe it has a whole machine gun, and that's why people love it. Um, I can't remember why this why the Staghound has actually been so popular lately. I know I've seen I'm seeing people take them more and more. Um, yeah, uh, the thing I like about the selection of armor cars, I mean, you're naming quite a few, but all of those have a purpose that you can tailor fit to your game plan, and that's what makes the selection of armor cars for the British so valuable. It's yes, there are a few that are quote unquote better than others. And there's a few that are more quote unquote less point efficient than others, but you can fit, you can find the one that fits what you want to suit on the tabletop. But also there's such a wide variety um, as far as historical theming goes that you can really put something interesting on, looking on the table that may be very similar to something else rules wise but really adds a nice flavor to make your British army look different from other people's on the tabletop. If that makes sense. Um, I, I, I just love that part of the British list because it does allow you to differentiate your forces. And it drives me crazy when I see British armies that all have the RD observer, the same armored car, the 25 pounder, you know, you just go, okay, can we think outside the box? Can we do something slightly different? Uh, even if we're putting a Matilda down, 
It's yeah. the same thing as a as a Sherman, but it's got at least it's got a square box for a turret. Yay. Yeah. Um, and it just makes for a more interesting, varied gaming experience. It's not like you're playing the same old thing all the time. I don't know. That's my little soapbox. I'll step off it now. No, I, 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 I would, I would continue to add. Um, I've talked a lot about the Humber. I, Warlord, re, you know, released that new Humber plastic kit in the mm-hmm. new starter army. They have not released it independently. No. And I, <laughs> I asked my in-laws for Christmas this year if I could get that starter army specifically for that armored car. I wanted the plastic kit and I sat down and I thought about it. I'm like, we talk about all this, you know, the juicy HE that I put into that double selection list. Well, I could still fit an armored car in there. It's mm-hmm. 95 points. And that list is cheap. Um, and you know, on everything that I'm bringing. And if I need to shave points somewhere, okay, maybe I drop a heavy mortar. Oh no. You know, maybe I mm-hmm. shave my officers down. Oh no, what am I going to, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a very sarcastic, what am I going to do next? Exactly. Right. Um, and, and that's, and, and that's, and that's really what I love about the British, um, especially in the desert. And I, and I emphasize this enough. I've, t- we've talked a lot about my European forces, but the British in the desert, I think are probably the, some of the most competitive while being thematic. Um, in in the game and you can and we talked about churchill you can fit a churchill in the desert they had them you can um you can take some of those or you can take those early war cruisers in the desert yes they had them um operation compass is a fascinating operation if you want to get Mm -hmm. into um early war north africa um yeah no and and so but like i said i i love humber I absolutely adore Humber, not not to get sidetracked by my, like we've talked about, ADD brain. Um, and so I, I, and now I'll get off my soapbox on on armored cars. Well, let me let me introduce you to another soapbox. Let me put this down for you and dust it off. And uh, what are your opinions of the old DACA Stewart, as it's affectionately called by all the WTC players? The, uh, was it the M3... Stuart that has all the machine guns on it. I think it's sacrilegious, especially <laughs> to what the British Army was trying to do. Um, the Explain. British, the, so the, when the British Army received the Stuarts, they saw the whole fixed machine guns and like, well, that's stupid. And they deleted them. Yeah. Um, they, you know, I I will run a Stuart. I'm, I probably put the pencil uh, LMG on top, but that's it. That's all I'm going to do. Um, I'm not going to go with the the whole facing machine guns because I think it's it's disingenuous as to what the British Army actually did. Now this is where the internet goes back and says, "Haha, I found the resource where they act, where somebody used their machine guns." Congratulations, you found the yeah. one tank. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> yeah, that was not commonly how they were used. Um, in fact, I found a lot more about how they were used in proper recce roles. And so when I've, I actually have a box of M3 Stuarts behind me on my shelf, and I'm going to be using those to make the British recce Stuarts, which what they did was they removed, they, they removed the uh, turrets and they kept some of the hull mounted machine guns on it. And then they put a, um, a, a, 50 cal 
on her O-ring on the top and said, cool, done. And it's open-topped. It's got, you know, two machine guns, and it is not particularly efficient in any way, shape, or form. But damn, does it look cool. And if you look up Recky Stewart's, uh, particularly in the desert, pictures of them, you know, festooned with jerry cans and, you know, water bottles and crates and little identification flags on the top. They look awesome. And I think that would make for a really cool addition to an army. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, you know what? I hadn't thought about that, Brad. That's awesome. I, I love that idea actually. No, I, I really do love it. And, um, the, the important thing to remember about American vehicles and British service is the reason that the British liked them is one, uh, they were easy to maintain. That's, that's mm -hmm. the big thing that we talk about, right. But they had smooth rides. Um, yeah. You, you know, and the Americans had the material to spare, whereas, you know, the British are still troubleshooting um, problems with the uh, with the placement of the air filters on Crusader, um, which they do solve, by the way. They do eventually solve it. The trouble is, um, by the time it's completely fixed, they're already on their way to Italy. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't even get me started about um, was it you said the Achilles earlier, and it was a uh, super heavy AT gun, but the only way they could or seventeen pounder, the only way they could fit it in the tank was to turn it sideways. That's the Firefly. Oh, that's um, a Firefly. Um, yeah, but there, what? But the Achilles still had a thing, right? They had. I think they they had to put extra weight in the back of the turret. Um, oh, but yeah, they, right. they they had to do that with Firefly too. They might have turned the, the Achilles on its side. Um, I mean, if you're going to talk about Achilles, it should be mentioned that I think Achilles, as far as M10 department goes, is probably better than M10. It's 255 points, if I remember correctly. It still maintains a 17-pounder, and the only downside is it's open top. If you're talking about my, my favorite thing in the American list, the... Oh, no, that's the M7 Priest. I was yeah. going to say... The M10, we're going to talk, but no, that, that, no. I'm trying to think, what's the, oh, the um, Wolverine. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the Wolverine. That's... So I, uh, I think they look cool. The British used them. Um, I'm actually, I've made it my mission to try and make it, comp the M10 competitive. Um, most people say, good luck. I don't believe you'll do it, but you know, we'll get there, guys. We'll get there eventually. That's the thing, man. If you believe in it and like you want to give it a go and you can have fun with it, I mean, that's all that matters, man. If you're having fun and you're not wrecking your opponent's fun, as I've said before, I don't think fun is a finite resource on a tabletop. You know, I am not trying to take all the fun from my opponent and keep it to myself so I have the most fun. I think you can have fun infinitely where I can have fun and you can have fun and it doesn't diminish the fun that either one of us are having, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, that what I think you can probably make almost anything work. And I could definitely make a list that would have an M10 that does interesting things. In fact, I know a uh, local player, JL, I think one of the bacon burgers did very well with one uh, last year from memory. So yeah, it's well, a thing. It's a discounted mobile heavy anti-tank gun, which, by the way, kids, I'm going to say this again, two-inch HE. Mm -hmm. So good. <laughs> oh, man. Well, 
Drake, I'm sure we could probably, uh, I think you and I are in, I think we're synced in many ways. And I think we could probably continue this conversation for hours. But unfortunately, I think both of us uh, have places we, we, we need to be, unfortunately. But brother, thank you so much for coming on today. It is It has been a pleasure to talk shop with you and uh, to reminisce about, or not even reminisce, but just to wax lyrical about everything great about the British. And hopefully, I know this is a little rambly and we went off in a bunch of different directions and we didn't necessarily directly address historical theming and being competitive at the same time. But I do think these conversations are good for folks um, because, you know, they do touch on a lot of elements on the tabletop and it's not just the same old um, let's take 25 pounders on everything. Just, I, I do encourage everyone out there to look at the list that you're running and then look at the things that, maybe you've dismissed in the past, do those things suit what your plan for your list is? Now that you've played your list a little bit, is there something, is there a tool that might fit that box a little bit better? That might even save you some points. Who knows? Uh, Drake, what are your thoughts? I agree. Um, we talk about the thematic event. Um, I've got a buddy who has made it his mission at a thousand points to play CeeLo Heights with two IS2s. At a thousand points, <laughs> he has made it his mission, his 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 mission from God. And I looked at him and I said, "Buddy, go for it. You know, have a good time." Um, it, it's so important uh, to have fun, and I think you know the, the the one thing that I hear all the time is, you know, how do I make something competitive, or why? What is the most competitive thing? And I said, "Play." You know what the most competitive thing is? It's what's fun at the end of the day. Because you will find that you are, as a player, more competitive when you are having fun. Because your mind is excited. You're thinking about different strategies that you can execute. You know, it's, whereas if you play the bland, I'm just going to run two Daka Stewarts and all the 25 pounders. And then I'm just going to polish it off with Gurkhas. Like, that doesn't excite me. and and I and I would wager that you know you're it, it's kind of it's to me it's I, and I don't want to say this to offend people but it's almost brain dead, um, which I think takes away from the player. So rule of cool is always cool, and yeah. it's always fun. And I think you as a player will will do better in competitive events. If you do something to, to make it spicy or bring a unit that you brought because you wanted to bring it, not because that's what the competitive narrative told you to bring. Especially if it's something that not many other people have seen. And you can really throw a monkey in someone's wrench uh, because we you know how to handle certain vehicles. You know what to do when you face certain situations. But if you really do, like in the with the case you mentioned earlier, if you all of a sudden are looking at a ranger force that's entirely running at you, you have to you know pivot on the point and come up with a new game plan. Now that's an extreme case, but there are lots of units in the game that you can add to your army or ways that you can play things that aren't quote unquote meta intuitive that really can make your force and you as a player quote unquote competitive whatever that means. Um, and you can do well with it. 
as long as you you know what you're doing and you are paying attention to the game that's happening in front of you and play some games with it. Don't, and I know I'm the worst person in the world to give this advice, but I've been playing a lot of games recently and the more I play with certain armies, the better I'm getting with them. So the more you play with the force, the, that will help you to be more competitive. Um, because if you know what how your force operates and other people don't necessarily, and you know what theirs does, you have a leg up. Anyway, I think it's time to put away all the soapboxes. Drake, again, thank you so much for making the time today. It has been a pleasure just to talk bolt action kind of generally. Um, and just to get a different person's perspective, especially since I think, <clears throat> as I've said before, I think we're a little bit in alignment. Yeah, absolutely. And and thank you for having me, Brad. Um, I've had a great time. I'm, I'm really am talking about something that I truly love. So thank you for making the time to, to talk to, with me about it today. Anytime. And brother, uh, we'll have to have you back on some time to talk shop because we definitely have not exhausted this topic or any other on this show today. Trust me. If you want to get into BEF or, or paratroopers, let's, we'll, we'll have to talk shop. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Now we're talking. On that note, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. As always, it is, uh, it is, you know, I'm always blown away by the number of people that listen to the show. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we will be back with some coverage of other games as well as lots more bolt action coverage because I have actually taken uh, almost a month off of recording at the time of this recording. Uh, so I know there wasn't a gap in what I was putting out. But, um, yeah, I, I definitely think it's time to get back in with the recording. I now have the time to do that, and I'm looking forward to talking about a lot of cool stuff. Please tune in and check out what we have going in the future. And I guess that just takes us to what our buddy Casey always says. When you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than that, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night.